All right, welcome to the Make America Garrett Again podcast, your cure for the mainstream media. This show is your safe space to talk about persuasion, politics, and the effect they have on your life and liberty. As always, everything we talk about is going to be viewed in light of our three main principles, peace, property rights, and free markets. So no matter what the issue is, you can look back at those principles and you can know where I stand on those and what angle we're going to take when we talk about those on this show. So we're here. Test episode number four. Uh, I got a lot of great feedback about test episode number three, and a lot of you said that you liked the format a lot better and that style uh, was just a little bit easier to listen to. So I'm excited to move forward kind of in that direction. We've got a couple stories that we are going to talk about here today. And as always, feel free to reach out to me. Let me know what you think of the show. Let me know what you'd like to talk about, what you'd like to learn about. Uh, There's so much out there, and there's only a limited amount of time we have here. And I want to talk about those things in a way that suits your needs and the things that you want to talk about and want to have a better understanding of as you have those discussions with your friends and coworkers and family members. Now, as you have no doubt heard, we had a shooting in New Zealand last Friday, and this guy murdered 50 people and injured another 50 more before he was caught by police. And first and foremost, I just want to say, this is devastating. This is absolutely heartbreaking. And I can't make it clear enough that this is not okay. This is not acceptable. It is an absolutely disgusting act to go out of your way to try to harm another person. They're saying that this guy was 28. Uh, He had a manifesto that contained uh, a lot of white supremacist type stuff and a lot of far right wing stuff. But it had meme references and a lot of things that were almost seemed like he was trying to troll the people reading it. He mentioned that he picked the style of weapons that he chose because he wanted to affect the gun conversation in the United States and the mass shooting conversation that we have in the United States. Obviously, as the media kind of talks about it and tries to figure out what these things mean, it seems almost as if he was playing the media and that he was trying to get a certain kind of reaction out of them because he knew the way that they tend to run with these stories. And I'm not going to spend much more time talking about this particular incident because I don't have a whole lot more to say about this other than that it's not okay, but and it's obviously going to spark on, uh, as he intended, more conversations about gun control and more arguments about whether or not it's appropriate to take away certain kinds of weapons from civilians or whether you should take away all firearms from civilians. And as we talked about in the abortion episode, test episode number two, if you listen to that, I said that There are certain emotional issues that you are not going to change someone's mind on. And I mentioned that gun rights was one of those. And I can tell you that when gun rights come up as a topic of discussion, you're probably not going to get very far with anybody. Most people know how they feel about guns. And most people have already decided whether or not they think you should have one, whether or not they think they should have one, and everything in between. So when these types of conversations come up, a lot of times I'll just kind of bow out of it. Just try to take the high road and just allow them to have their opinion and don't stress about it because it's so difficult to keep calm in those situations. And it doesn't matter what facts you use because there are facts that support every side of the argument. It's no secret 
that a lot of people use guns to kill people. And it's also no secret that a lot of people use guns to protect themselves. Whichever angle you want to come at it with, you're going to find things that support that. And ultimately, if you ask me, I don't come to your house and tell you what you can and can't have on your property. I don't come to your house and go through your stuff and tell you what I think is safe to be around your children or to be around your loved ones or neighbors. And I'm going to ask that you give me the same courtesy and allow me to protect myself and my family the way that I choose to do it as well. There's not a lot more to say than that. We'll probably talk about guns a little bit more as this podcast goes on. But I will say I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time trying to change your mind on it. Ultimately, all I can tell you is going back to my principles, peace, property rights, and free markets, I don't think that you should try to hurt another person unless it's in self-defense. And I don't think anyone should stand in the way of you purchasing whatever it is that you need to make sure that you feel safe in your home and as you travel about. So I've got an article here from Intellectual Takeout. The name of it is, Why Are There So Many Mass Shootings Today? Uh, This was written in October 2017, right after the shooting in Las Vegas, where the guy holed up in a hotel room and uh, sprayed down on a concert and ended up killing around 60 people, I think, and injured over 500 more. This article puts forth the best theory that I've heard as to why this seems to happen so much more today than maybe it used to in the past. There is a philosopher named Hannah Arendt, and um, I'm going to post this in the show notes so that you can read up on this if you want and maybe look into more of her work. But there was a work that she did called On Violence, and uh, I'll just read here. In her classic work, On Violence, Arendt discussed the ideas of power and violence at length. She begins her essay by quoting Voltaire, who said, "'Power essentially consists in making others act as I choose.'" If such a definition is true, and if the essence of power is the effectiveness of command, then there is no greater power than that which grows out of the barrel of a gun, she said. But, Arendt qualified that power and violence are two very different things. In fact, she said they are diametrically opposed. Politically speaking, it is insufficient to say that power and violence are not the same. Power and violence are opposites, where one rules absolutely, the other is absent. Violence appears where power is in jeopardy, but left to its own course, it ends in power's disappearance. True power, Aaron says, doesn't require violence. It belongs to a group, never an individual, and it remains so long as the group stays together and can exert its will. Violence, on the other hand, is an instrument. It's most often employed by those who lack power or by a group that feels power slipping away. So, the article says, if Arendt is correct, violence is an instrument most likely to be used by those who lack power and feel powerless. And this is where she critiqued modern society. Arendt believed that modern states had become bogged down under the monstrous weight of their own bigness. She saw that the bigger a state grew, the more there was a need for an administrative apparatus to allow it to function. The bureaucratization of society sounds more mundane than oppressive, but Arendt saw it as an insidious and smothering force that resulted in a sort of faceless tyranny. Um, They go on to kind of say that humans are, by nature, political creatures. She believed that the bureaucracy of society robs a man of his fundamental human need, the ability to take action. And she goes on to say that uh, bureaucracy is 
um, the rule by an intricate system of which uh, no men, neither one nor the best, neither the few nor the many, can be held responsible. And it can properly be called the rule by nobody. Indeed, if we identify tyranny as a government that is not held to give account of itself, rule by nobody is clearly the most tyrannical of all, since there is no one left who could even be asked to answer for what is being done. If this, it is this state of affairs which is among the most potent causes for the current worldwide rebellious unrest. So what she's saying is that the government in general, whether no matter where you are, whether it's in America or another country, you know, it can be your city government, your state government, whatever it is, it becomes more and more bureaucratic as it grows. And as it grows in power, it also grows in size. And there are a lot more people who work for the government than what used to work for the government. So the more and more people you add to something, the more it kind of loses its face, right? There's, there's not a person that you can really look at anymore that sums up all of the government. You know, we, we look at the president and we kind of maybe consider him the face of the country. But when you think of all of society and you think of all of your country, all of those senators and representatives and your mayor and your governor and your state representatives, all of those people kind of blend together. And a lot of times we don't even know who they are. And they're the ones making choices about how you should live your life and what kind of laws are going to direct your life and direct the things that you're allowed to do and the way that you're allowed to spend your money and the things that you're allowed to do in your recreational time. While they're doing all of that, there's really nobody that you can hold accountable. And she calls that the rule by nobody. She says that uh, what makes a man a political being is his faculty to act, uh, she wrote in her 1969 essay, Reflections on Violence. And I think it can be shown that no other human ability has suffered to such an extent by the progress of modern age. And uh, this is where she arrives at the correlation between bureaucracy and violence. The greater the bureaucratization of public life, the greater will be the attraction of violence. In a fully developed bureaucracy, there is nobody left with whom one could argue, to whom one could present grievances, on whom the pressures of power could be exerted. Bureaucracy is the form of government in which everybody is deprived of political freedom, of the power to act, for the rule by nobody is not no rule, and where all are equally powerless, we have a tyranny without a tyrant. What she's saying is that you, as a human, have an innate desire to chase your own dreams and to chase the things that you want and to go after what makes you happy. But when government grows to the point where it's directing the direction that society allows us to go, and sometimes it tells you what words you are and aren't allowed to say, and it tells you the things that you are and aren't allowed to buy, and directs the way that you are to live your life, that causes friction between you and the current society. And it used to be that there was somebody that you could go and bring your grievances to. You could write a letter and know that the, the mayor or the senator or whoever you're writing to was going to open that letter. You could go up to the local mayor's office and pound on his door and probably give him a piece of your mind if you really wanted to a long time ago. You try to do that today, it's not going to happen. You know, it, it almost reminds me of the, the scene in Monty Python where they ride up to the castle and, and they're yelling at the Frenchmen in the castle from across the moat, asking them if they want to go get the Holy Grail with them, and all they do is yell insults back at them. 
even in those situations, at least you could go to the door of the castle and, and yell insults at the king if you wanted to. And, you know, maybe somebody's going to take you away for it and maybe you're going to get yourself into trouble. But there's at least somewhere where you could go where you could say your piece. And now, if you have a problem with the way that society is, there's nobody to yell at. There's nobody that you can bring your grievances to. It's just the way it is. And there's nobody that you can hold responsible for these things. And that causes frustration within people. And that's not to say that it's okay to hurt anybody and that you, you need to do something drastic and crazy to get your point across. But we all know that there are people in our midst that are more susceptible to violence and more mentally unstable than what your average person is. And there are people in society that have ideas that may be gross or offensive. So as that frustration grows in these people, they feel like they have nowhere to go to express that. And now, as our society has grown to the point where there are a lot of things that you aren't really even supposed to talk about or aren't even really supposed to bring up, that causes even more pressure to build up in this person that's not allowed to express their ideas or their concerns. Look, bigotry is still disgusting, okay? It is absolutely ignorant and wrong to dislike someone because of the color of their skin or because of what gender they are or because of what religion they are, okay? That is not peaceful. Um, that is not fair. That is not the way that we should treat one another. You should look at the individual and you should see how that person measures up against goodness, against peace, what their intelligence and what their skill is and what they bring to the table instead of who they worship or what color skin they have. But we have to admit that those people are out there. I am not condoning racism in the least, all right? I, it's not, this is not what I'm saying. Don't take this out of context and try to twist it around. I'm, I know that stuff happens, but let me make myself clear. I am not advocating racism. What I'm saying is we know that there are racists around us. We know that those people exist. And the best way that we can deal with those ideas and those people is to allow them to talk and allow them to share their ideas and then to meet those ideas with better ideas and to meet those messages with a better message. If someone thinks that another person is inferior because the color of their skin is, is darker than mine, I should be able to meet that with open arms and say, no, absolutely not. These are all of the reasons why you're wrong. These are all of the reasons why this is a disgusting idea and it's unacceptable for you to act that way. But the conversation needs to happen. The Ku Klux Klan has been in this country for hundreds of years. And especially uh, in, in my recent memory, they would have their parades and they would go and they would do this stuff and nobody cared. Everybody would roll their eyes or sigh when they saw the news article come up that there was a, a Ku Klux Klan parade planned. But that was about it. You know, people would show up and they would have their march and they'd wear their hoods and everybody would just kind of roll their eyes and, and laugh at them a little bit sometimes or just be disgusted with it. And then they would go back and they would have their meetings or whatever and, and that was pretty much the end of it. But as pressure from the media and from a lot of society has increased to say that those kind of ideas 
need to be shut out and that those people need to lose their jobs and that those people need to be um, brought into public and have their reputations destroyed, what that's doing is it's making them believe that they have something worth fighting for. It's creating martyrs out of them. And all it's doing is, is giving them strength and giving them motivation and causing them to fight even more because they think that they have something worth believing in. When instead, what we should be doing is we should be inviting those ideas out into the public. We should be inviting those people to meet and talk and to actually develop relationships with people who aren't like them so that they can see that those ideas are wrong. Look, if I can't articulate to my children why racism or sexism or homophobia or whatever else is an absolutely disgusting way to view the world, that's an indictment on me. So instead of shielding and protecting people from these disgusting ideas, we need to bring them out into the open. We need to face them, we need to talk about them, and we need to shut them down rationally and ideologically instead of physically. Because when you simply shove those people out of society, you're going to cause them to lash out at society. And when they feel the most powerless and they feel the most helpless, that's when they're going to resort to the most violence. So I think that the best thing that we can do to try to help prevent these mass shootings doesn't involve laws. It doesn't involve the president. It doesn't involve anything to do with your guns. It involves giving people a place where they can speak and then giving those people the reasons why these horrible ideas are wrong instead of making martyrs out of them and giving them something to fight for. Let's move on to something a little bit lighter. Beto O'Rourke has declared that he is a candidate for the 2020 presidential race, and uh, Donald Trump had something to say about him, and we're going to listen to this clip. Well, I think he's got a lot of hand movement. I've never seen so much hand movement. I said... Is he crazy, or is that just the way he acts? So uh, I've never seen hand movement. I watched him a little while this morning doing, I assume it was some kind of a news conference, uh, and I've actually never seen anything quite like it. Study it. I'm sure you'll agree. Now, you're probably thinking, um, this is stupid. This doesn't make any sense. Who cares? One of the things that's really interesting about him is the way that he uses persuasion. And um, I think in the first episode, I... Uh, referenced Scott Adams' book, Win Bigly. Definitely a book you should read if you're interested in that. Speaks so much about the things that Donald Trump does for persuasion and the things that he does to try to get a leg up on any of his opponents uh, or the opposing party. So what he's doing here is actually pretty interesting. It sounds stupid. It doesn't seem like it's relevant at all. Why would you care? But what he's doing is he's pointing out this quirk about Beto, and he actually said, you know, I can't even pay attention to what he's saying because I'm too distracted by his hands. And now, if Beto makes it to the debates, I can promise you, now that you've seen it, you're not going to be able to look away from his hands. And you, too, are going to be so distracted by him waving his hands around and flinging them all over the place, that you're not even be able to pay attention to what he says. And you're probably going to ask yourself, do I really want to vote for a president who is supposed to be so well-respected and, and it's supposed to be such a, a high honor and a high-level office when this guy is constantly flapping his hands around like a madman. And it seems like something small, 
but it really does come off as an attack on his credibility and a distraction from anything good that he might be able to say. We're in a really interesting time because this is, as Michael Malice has pointed out, this is the first time where you're going to have an opposing party running up against uh, an incumbent president, and the president is actually going to be taking shots at them on Twitter and on the news as the whole race unfolds. So typically what's usually happened before is the opposition party kind of has their own you know, their own race to see who's going to be the guy or girl that they send up against the incumbent president. And they all have to fight each other and they have to find out who the winner is in their own party. And then their focus turns to the president. But what Donald Trump is going to do and what he's already doing is he's taking shots at those people as early as he possibly can. He's trying to discredit them. He's trying to take them out of the race so that not only do they have to fight each other to get the nomination, but they also have to fight off attacks from him at the same time. And you see him do this with the the nicknames that he gives. Um, you know, I think that he's already taken Liz Warren out of the race as well, I think, because um, by giving her that nickname, Pocahontas, as silly and as disrespectful as it sounds, every time that he calls her Pocahontas or every time somebody else references the Pocahontas thing, it reminds you that this woman lied about her background and lied about her culture most likely so that she could get a leg up getting into college and that this could possibly put her in you know a little bit more of a protected class as she taught at college. And that once again just serves to remind you, do I want a president who can't even tell me the truth about who they are? So this is going to be really interesting and he's going to be doing this with just about everybody. You know, he might pick one or two people that he actually wants to run against and thinks he can beat uh, and he may stay quiet about them to try to help them a little bit. But most likely, he's going to be going after everybody, and he's going to have something to say about the dirt that the public has on any of these people. And um, I don't know if he's called Joe Biden Creepy Joe yet, but I can guarantee you that that's going to be coming. So they're going to be stuck fighting each other and fighting him at the same time, and he's really going to have a head start going into the 2020 race. We're going to talk about this on future podcasts as well, but I really think that uh, Donald Trump is going to win in 2020 provided that the economy holds out. And uh, as long as the economy is in decent shape when we go into that election, I, I really don't think that the Democrats have a lot that they can do to take him out of office. I think he's going to have four more years. I'll give you some more of my reasons as we move into future episodes. And lastly, we're going to finish off with an article from Zero Hedge. Uh, it's called The Secret Reason Trump is Ready to Fold and Cut a China Trade Deal. Now, what we've seen um, last week was that Donald Trump is starting to push for a trade deal with China. Uh, if you'll recall, he was complaining a lot about China during his campaign and into the beginning part of his presidency. And we've almost had a trade war a couple of times because he's upset that we are supposedly not getting a fair deal on our trades with China because we buy so much more from them than what they buy from us. Now, first of all, it doesn't really matter who buys from who. Because if we're giving them money in exchange for the goods, there's still a, a, a flow going there. Um, this All this talk about trade deficits doesn't really matter as much as you would think. And I think it was Thomas Massey that pointed out, you have a trade deficit with the grocery store. You go to them and you give them money for their goods. They don't give you any money back or they don't buy things off of you. You're just going to them and taking things off of them in exchange for money. 
obviously you don't have a problem with this because the deal works out for both parties. They're happy that they get the money. You're happy that you get your food and you're going to come back next week and shop again because you're still happy with it. And that's, that's the way that things work. So there's not so much of a, a big issue of us buying so many products from China because again, that's how they make their money and that's helping their nation as well. But you know, Trump talked really tough and we were going to hit them with sanctions and we were going to hit them with tariffs and, and some of those things have taken place and uh, a lot more has just been threatened and then put off and, and all of this. But now Trump is pushing for a China deal in hope of fueling the market rally, according to sources. The article says, of course, the president's motivation had become all too clear, both his, to his subordinates and the investing public. Trump believes a deal with China is the only thing standing between the S&P 500 and 3,000. But just in case you missed the first report uh, about the motive behind why U.S. and Chinese negotiators are reportedly scrambling to hash out a deal, um, Bloomberg has an anonymously sourced warning that Trump might be willing to squander all of this leverage over China in exchange for another leg higher in equities. So what they're saying here is that Trump is starting to worry a little bit about how our relations with China are going to affect the stock market. You have no doubt heard Trump talking about how great the stock market's doing and how high the S&P is going, and he wants that to keep building the best he can because he has stamped his name on it. He put the tax cuts into place and rolled back some regulations, and the stock market is doing well. You'll hear him constantly talking about how well the economy is doing under him and how great his economy is. However, something that a lot of people don't understand is the stock market and the economy are not the same thing. Obviously, they are tied together and the stock market can be an indicator of how the economy is doing, but it is not the end-all be-all of the economy. We have a lot of debt and there are a lot of bubbles that show that our economy is really not in as great a shape as you would think. So stock markets go up because people are spending money, because people are investing and they are buying stocks. Just because people are spending money doesn't necessarily mean that everybody's got a ton of money and that everybody's doing great. I live relatively close to a pretty large city, and I have joked several times that this city is the capital of broken down BMWs on the side of the road. All over the place, you see these people and they buy these fifty, sixty thousand dollar cars, and then they can't afford an oil change for them, and they can't afford to have any maintenance done, and then their car breaks down, and it's on the side of the road, and now they have a fifty thousand dollar piece of junk that's not worth anything, and they're in debt, and also they don't have a car now, and our economy is kind of in similar shape. Now, the one thing that everybody loves to do is they love to blame the opposing party as soon as anything goes wrong. So, you know, the, the 2007, 2008 recession, everybody, you know, that was all George Bush's fault. And, and you know, we had to get Barack Obama in there to, to change things up and to get us out of there. And now uh, when anything went wrong, when Trump was taking office, that was all Obama's fault. And Barack Obama did all of that. And now as we move toward more bubbles and another recession, everyone's going to be taking position so that they can blame whoever they want to blame for what goes wrong. I'm not going to have time today to go into everything that the Federal Reserve does, but basically the way it works is the Federal Reserve is a bank that is technically privately owned, and it's basically the bank that 
all of the other banks have to report to. They are allowed to create money. They are allowed to ask the treasury to print money. And they're allowed to control interest rates of the way that banks lend to and from each other. Now, because they're technically privately owned, they don't constantly turn over and change the people who are in office the way that the president does or that the Senate does. You know, you're not going to have every four or eight years everybody in the Fed flipping over and, and changing. And the idea behind this is supposed to be that it needs to be stable and they need to guide the economy and they need to help prevent the kind of stock market crashes and the kind of recessions and depressions that we've had in the past. So they have all kinds of special privileges and special abilities, but they don't really answer to a presidential administration. But what they'll do like any other political group is they're going to take credit when things are going well. And then if things go wrong, they're going to be able to shift the blame somewhere else. You know, something else happened. We've got to blame somebody. Um, with the 2008 recession, it was, you know, big banks. And we're going to blame them for it. You know, they need to pay. But the, the problem with controlling so much is that when you are able to manipulate the economy and manipulate what people are doing and how they're spending their money and what the interest rates are, that means that you're not getting a true picture of what kind of shape the economy is really in. And so one of the things that they've done to try to encourage growth in the stock market and encourage the economy and encourage people to, to believe that we are out of the recession is they want you to spend money. And so they do everything they can um, by using inflation and by keeping interest rates down and all of this stuff to make sure that you are hopefully buying as much stuff as possible because as they believe... Buying things is what gives us a strong economy. And if you're out there spending your money, then that means that some business is getting your money. And it kind of makes sense on the surface because it's, it's good to see people spending money in this and that. But the problem is that so many American citizens and in a sense, the American government and the American economy as well are kind of like the people who were driving that BMW, but don't have the money to do any maintenance on it. You know, you've always had the, the stereotypical pictures of people who have the nicest house and the nicest car and all of the coolest stuff, and then you find out that they've got $100,000 of credit card debt. And our economy is very much the same way. We are headed toward another recession, and we are overdue. And what a recession does, as difficult as it can be to deal with, is it's essentially an adjustment back down to where the economy actually is compared to where people thought that it was. This can get kind of complicated, and we will go into this more as the episodes go on, but the point that I want you to understand from this article is that Donald Trump understands that the economy is not necessarily in as good a shape as the stock market is. And many, many economists believe that we are probably overdue for a recession. A lot of times we have a minor to major recession every 10 years or so. And over the past couple of decades, they've gotten worse every time. You know, you had the, the late 90s dot-com bubble that burst, and then you had the housing market that caused another crash. And now we are 
over 10 years past that. And a lot of people think that there's another, there are other bubbles out there, that there are bond bubbles and that there are other markets that are, are way overstretched and that at some point they're going to have to correct. And this could be devastating, especially to whoever the president is. Because even though the Fed does these policies a lot of times in spite of who the president is, the president is the one who gets to take the credit for it or take the blame for it. So Donald Trump is desperately trying to keep everything afloat as long as he possibly can so that he can go into the 2020 election with a strong economy and with a strong stock market. And once again, as I said, we know the economy is not actually that strong, but when it comes to the way that people spend their money, a lot of times perception is more important than reality. If you can keep people spending and you can keep putting measures in place to keep people spending, you can keep that BMW out on the highway. But sooner or later, it's going to catch up to you and you're going to have to fix it and you're going to have to deal with it. And a lot of times they just do things to prolong that and to make it worse instead of letting things naturally go back to where they were. So when I say that the third principle for this show is free markets, I'm saying that the Federal Reserve should not be manipulating interest rates. It should not be creating money. It should not be causing inflation because these things skew our view of what the economy really looks like. And that causes businesses to invest in the wrong places and at the wrong times when they should be able to use free and fair interest rates as signals to when they should invest and when they should save. And that we should be having money back in savings as well because you never know when something is going to go wrong. But instead, if you spend, 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 and then an emergency happens or a correction happens and reality hits you hard, you don't have a good way to react. So what Donald Trump is doing here is he's trying to do everything he can to make sure that that stock market's well. And if he has to go back on his word about making China pay for the trade deficit or whatever, um, then that's better than the alternative. Because if the recession happens, excuse me, when the recession happens, he's going to get blamed for it. He didn't necessarily cause it. At the same time, he hasn't done anything to help keep it away, but he's going to get the blame for it. So all he can hope for is that it at least holds up until the election in 2020 because it's coming and we just don't know when. If you've ever had somebody in your house that's pregnant, you know that, you know, you get around that eighth month and you start to realize, okay, this could happen any time now, but you don't know exactly when. You get closer to the due date and you're like, it's got to be any day now. And you get to the due date and it's going to be any minute now. And you know that it's almost time, but you never know for sure when it's time until it happens. And it's much the same way when we're talking about the recession and things that happen with an economy. It's, it's definitely possible to predict what's going to happen, but it is very, very difficult, probably almost impossible to give a good prediction of when it's going to happen. So Trump is hoping that the win gets pushed back as far as possible, and maybe he can even push it back another five or six years and wait until he gets out of office and hopefully avoid more of the responsibility for it. So everybody does this. Every president knows that he wants to stretch things out and make things look good for as good as possible, and the more out of whack things get between the way the economy looks and the way that the economy is really holding up, the harder it's going to be when that correction comes back and um, you find out that you know things weren't quite as, as rosy as you had hoped that they were. So Trump's going to hold out the best he can, and uh, whoever comes in after Trump is, is going to be doing the same thing, just the same way that the people that came before Trump did it.
So uh, I'll be back in just a little bit, record another episode. Uh, Until then, I want to thank you again for listening, tuning into this podcast. I know we're still doing test episodes and I'm not on a regular schedule yet, but thank you so much for subscribing and coming back if that's what you're doing. And uh, I can't wait until we officially launch and I'm going to start asking you to share this with everybody that you know. Reach out to me on Twitter. Username is at Garrett again uh, with just one R in Garrett or Facebook.com slash Garrett again. Garrett with just one R. And let me know what you think. Let me know what you want to talk about and what you want to hear more about because I want this to be your show. I want this to be the place that you come to find out about what's really going on and to get the full story instead of just the media spin on things. Till then, stay kind, stay vigilant, stay free. Get out of here.